Thank you for joining me for another episode of Pediatrics in Practice with Children's Mercy Kansas City. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner, Associate Professor of Neurology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center and Division Director of Neurology at Regional One Health, Memphis, Tennessee. My guest today is Jody Schroba, Pediatric Nurse Practitioner and Food Allergy Program Coordinator in the Department of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology at Children's Mercy Kansas City. She also heads the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Food Insecurity Workgroup. At Children's Mercy, Jody serves on the Hunger-Free Hospital Council and the Medical Advisory Board of the Food Equality Initiative. Today, she will enlighten us about the problem of food insecurity and food allergies in the pediatric population. Welcome, Jody Schroba. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here today. And food allergy is one of my main focuses at work. And obviously, the pandemic has brought food insecurity to light. So this is a good way to bring the two things together and, and talk about them as they do go hand in hand. When I was in medical school, I don't remember the term food insecurity. It seems to be sort of a new phrase. Could you define that for us? Sure. I feel like when I was in my grad school program, we didn't talk much about food insecurity either. So I do feel like it's maybe one of those more buzzwords that you hear a lot more of today. Same thing as shared decision making is another one of those kind of buzzwords. But the definition of food insecurity is really the inability to provide enough safe, nutritious food to meet your dietary requirements for people. And then there's also the term very low food insecurity, which means that not only are you food insecure, but you actually are adjusting your eating patterns because you do not have enough food to even provide for an adequate nutritional level. You know, this is the United States of America. Is uh, this a problem? Sadly to say, yes. You would think we're the big, bad, mighty United States, and and sure, we have enough food for everybody to go around, but sadly, that is not true. Some frightening statistics. In 2020, about 10% of U.S. households were considered food insecure. So if you want to put that into numbers, that's 13.8 million people declared food insecurity in 2020. Those that were very low food insecure in 2020 were about 3.9%, so about 5 million. While we do not have official numbers for 2021 yet, the projected model with the COVID pandemic is going to bump those numbers up to about 13% are food insecure. So again, 42 million people in this country report not having enough food to eat. And what really makes that sad is to think that 6.8% of these households have children that are reporting food insecurity. Sure. And, you know, it's important, obviously, for children to have proper nutrition for, uh, well, I'm a neurologist for brain growth, for one thing, as well as uh, proper uh, development in every way. And then on top of that, there's this problem of food allergies, The famous one, I guess, is peanuts. I remember I was on an airplane, actually, and a a young child got a hold of the free peanuts, and luckily the mother had the EpiPen, but it was quite a, a drama. How common is that? Well, the problem on the planes actually is not common anymore since they have removed peanuts from airplanes. 
but in the United States, 32 million Americans have a food allergy, and of that, about 8% of children have a food allergy. So again, throwing out percentages is sometimes hard for people to wrap their head around. So if you want to think of a classroom of, say, 25 kids, two kids in every classroom are going to have a food allergy. And we do know that there are the top nine big food allergies. We used to say the top eight and sesame's getting added to that list. So the most common food allergies are peanuts, tree nuts, milk, egg, soy, wheat, fin fish, shellfish, and sesame. You know, the schools try and provide nutritious meals for children, but I think if they eliminated all of those, there's not much left. No milk, no soy, no nuts. So do the schools take that into account as they're trying to feed children healthy meals? They do. A lot of schools have gone peanut and tree nut free. But like you mentioned, to have nutritious meals, you can't avoid egg, milk, soy, wheat. You know, those are the foundations of most foods we eat. So those foods are still available. And and part of my job is not only do I clinically diagnose food allergies, but I have to teach families and children how to live in a world where their food allergy is around them. If you think about food allergies, for example, I mean, we eat three meals a day, two snacks, maybe three snacks a day. Their main illness is always around them with food. And so we have to teach them how to safely navigate that world. And that's part of my job. And that's probably the part of my job I love the most is the education of of how you can live with food allergies. And And part of where the food insecurity and food allergy comes together is because the only management currently for food allergy, because there is no cure, the only management is avoidance. And so for these kids to stay healthy, they need to not eat their allergen. So then you talk about now you're relying on food assistance, whether it be through the schools or the summer meal programs or WIC or SNAP, which is a supplemental nutrition program formerly known as food stamps, or even food pantries, food banks, they can't accommodate maybe all of these necessities that children with food allergies have. And so they have to just get what they can get and then hand it out to families. And they talked about during the pandemic, you'd see those lines of cars lined up at the food banks and they would just put a box of food in the back of their car. And they didn't ask you, oh, do you have any dietary restrictions? No, you got what you got. And that may be fine for a lot of people, but those with food allergies, they were still maybe not getting the foods that adequately met their nutritional needs. And so that's where that food allergy and food insecurity goes so hand in hand because the treatment of food allergies is the avoidance of food. So then how do we get them safe food? And then if you don't have the money to afford them, I don't know if you've ever been to the grocery store and looked at the price difference between say a loaf of bread and a loaf of bread that does not have wheat in it. And the cost is enormous. If you look at the cost of a jug of milk, which we all know is very expensive. I was just at the store yesterday. I paid $5 for the jug of milk. For those that need to get, say, one of the nut milks or a soy milk, they're going to pay triple, quadruple that amount for a quarter of the amount. And so that's where the real problem comes in is that the family still may be able to afford food for their children that don't have food allergies. They may not have the money to pay for these specialty foods because they are so expensive. 
Does food allergy include a gluten intolerance? Does that fall into that category? I know that's very common. Yeah, so we could do a whole podcast just on that. You might have to invite me back. So when you talk about a gluten intolerance, that is a problem of the GI system. So the GI system is unable to break down essentially the gluten. And gluten is used in a lot of foods and primarily it's used in a lot of our foods in America at least as a filler and a preservative. And so there really is not a allergic response to gluten. People that have trouble with wheat that are allergic to wheat, that's an IgE, so meaning your immune system gets involved, where gluten intolerance is just that your body can't break it down, so it only involves the GI tract, where a food allergy is gonna involve your entire immune system. So there is a very big difference between the two. However, those with a wheat allergy, they will use the gluten-free products because of the fact that wheat and gluten go essentially hand in hand. Thank you for clarifying that. Now, tell us about your work with the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I understand you did a survey. We did. So probably through most medical specialties, there's always subcommittees of the varying diseases that your specialty treats. And so we call it quad AI. That's an easier way to say than American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. So through the quad AI, we do have a subcommittee called the Adverse Reactions to Food Committee. And most of the members on there are people that do specialty work in subspecialized in food allergy management research. And so through that subgroup, they kind of break that off and then kind of have sub subcategories. And so through the pandemic, we realized that there really wasn't kind of a subcategory to talk about food insecurity and what was being done for it. And I think before the pandemic, maybe all of us had our rose-colored glasses on that maybe those social determinants of health really aren't a big deal in the specialty world. We knew they existed in primary care and we knew the primary care physicians took care of them. But in the specialty world, we kind of skated over them. And so with the pandemic and seeing on the news about how people were just unable to get food, it sparked us to say, are we looking at food insecurity? And and again, going back to that, our patients, their treatment is avoidance of food. And so if they're insecure, what's going to happen? So We created this workgroup report and I had allergists on it. I had some psychologists on it. Nurses are on it. We even had some dietitians, and then we had a community advocate from a food equality initiative, which is also an organization that helps those that are food insecure that have food allergies and celiac disease. And so we kind of came together as a group and we just said, let's talk about it. Let's find out what the allergy community is doing. Now, at the time that we sent the survey, I think there was a lot of maybe some survey fatigue or just people that were just, you know, COVID was a big deal and people were dealing with a lot of things on top of it. So filling out a survey may have not been their first priority, but of the results that we got back, it was interesting to note that only about 25% of those that responded to the survey are actually screening for food insecurity. And about 70% said they weren't even talking about it with their family. Even if they weren't screening it, they weren't even having a discussion about it. 
So we went ahead and created a workgroup report that we did explain the survey and kind of those results that we had. But then from the survey, we learned that people didn't know how to screen for it. They didn't have enough information about what resources should you have if you have a family that's food insecure and just really didn't know how to even talk about food insecurity. So we almost kind of turned it into a how-to manual where we provided varying food insecurity screenings that are available, mainly through our more primary care-based organizations, and then talking about some of those national and federal programs that can help, and then maybe how you can start working with some of your local food banks and some of our allergy non-for-profit organizations to really kind of help our families and just try to make practitioners feel more comfortable bringing up a situation that is uncomfortable. People are sometimes afraid to admit that they need help. And so we really wanted to make a food insecurity screening feel normal and to feel like just the normal part of an exam, just like a normal part of an exam in every clinic is vital signs. So why not make screening for food insecurity like a vital sign? And, and that's why we use the hunger vital sign, which is a two question survey, just finding out what their needs are with food. Right. It's kind of like uh, depression. You know, it's awkward to ask people, oh, are you suicidal? You know, so there's a, I think it's a two question depression tool that's widely used now. And if you get a positive answer on one of the two, you better ask some more questions and try and help that person. But yeah, these are uh, sensitive topics. Well, are there any important takeaways that you would like pediatricians to know? I want to always give kudos to our pediatric partners because social determinants of health has been something that's been screened in the primary care clinic much, much longer than it's been screened in the specialty clinic. So they were already doing this movement. And now I think the movement is specialty care is going to get more involved with that. So that is my kudos to the primary care providers. I think it's that we need to recognize that in a lot of diseases, And you being a neurologist, you know, think about your kids with epilepsy and they have special diets that they're on. And here in food allergy, we have kids that avoid food, so they're on special diets. GI providers have special diets based on their diagnosis. And we could go down the list, diabetics. I think that we need to really, as a medical community, start thinking about making food almost like a medicine and that we should be having prescription plans that will allow us as providers to write prescriptions for food and write prescriptions for foods that are necessary based on the diagnosis our patients have. And so it really should be food as medicine because food is so imperative to a lot of the diagnoses that we as specialty care take care of. And so I think that us working with our primary care partners we could really build a big movement and start making some real policy change and some change on our insurance plans that allows us to write for food. Because when you get down to the root of all medicine, diet is what keeps everybody healthy. And we need to get back together and work together to make food as acceptable as prescribing a pill. And I hope that's what primary care providers will get out of today is that food is so important and we need to all get on board of making discussions about food insecurity, not a uncomfortable conversation. 
and then also to come together to try to make food more accessible to all of our patients. Well, thanks for that. I think you might be on to something there. (laughs) Jody. thanks for enlightening us about food insecurity and food allergies in children. Well, thank you. And again, thank you for having me. And I look forward to seeing all of the medical community come together one day and we don't have to talk about food insecurity. This has been Pediatrics in Practice with Children's Mercy Kansas City. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and all the other Children's Mercy podcasts. To learn more about nutrition services at Children's Mercy, please visit childrensmercy.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner. Thanks for listening.